This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. My name is Jacob, one of the pastors here at the Axis. Excited to dig into God's Word with you all. Uh, I see a lot of new faces. Just want to say welcome. If it's your first time, if it's been a couple weeks, we're glad you're here. We uh, serve a God of great intentionality. And so there is no random series of events that has led you into this room this morning. And I pray that uh, you would feel welcomed. We've been praying for you and that we would all be encouraged by the time we spend in God's word as we take a little break from our journey through the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking together at one of the most famous parables of Jesus this morning. Jesus was a brilliant teacher, the most brilliant teacher that has or will ever walk the face of the earth. And one of the teaching techniques that he employed most frequently was the use of parable. Now, parables use metaphorical language in order to help the hearer to grasp more easily a, a regularly difficult to grasp concept specifically about God. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. There's a series of many parables, but the one that we're going to look at is in verses 11 through 34. It's the parable often entitled the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you guys have read this many, many times throughout your time in God's word. Most of us have heard at least one sermon preached on this parable. Some of us have may even gone through Bible studies based on this portion of scripture. Unfortunately, there's so often a common misconception about the parable being that the parable is primarily about the prodigal son, about the younger son, the rebellious sinning son, if you will. But Jesus didn't name this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, but he starts the parable by saying that there was a father who had two sons. This is a parable full of scandal. This is Downton Abbey meets intervention, if you will. There is shock value in this story that is worthy of TMZ, but the scandal and the shock value are not used by Jesus simply to entertain the audience, but Jesus, as the most brilliant teacher, has great intentionality even in every specific detail of this parable. The parable that we're going to hear is simultaneously like a wrecking ball crashing into preconceived ideas about God and sin and salvation. And at the same time, it's like cool, fresh, pure water poured out onto a dry and thirsty soul, depending on how you receive it. Even this morning, there are three main characters, characters in the parable. There are two sons one father who loves them both very much. This narrative is as much about the older son, the religious son is what we'll call him, as it is about the younger son. And even more than that, it's, it's about the father in the story. So I want to pray for us. And then I'm excited. This, this chunk of scripture has had more impact on my life than anything else in the Bible. So I pray that God will move mightily and encourage our hearts. Pray with me. We'll continue. So glad you're here. Excited to see what the Lord has for us. Jesus, our King, we believe you're alive. 
We thank you that you've made a way for us to be in relationship with your Father, that you have made a way for rebels to be called sons and daughters. We thank you for your word, Father, that is perfect and pure. We ask you, as a good Father, that you would send us your spirit to make your word penetrable into our hearts, to make it active, to make it edifying, to make it consumable, to make it applicable, to make it encouraging. Um, Simply, would you do things in our hearts through your word that we can't do on our own? And would you open our eyes to see what we wouldn't see on our own and to see what you would have for our hearts. We pray that you would be glorified, that worship would be produced from what you do in our hearts and that our weary hearts would be encouraged through our time together. We love you. Thank you for the way you love us in Christ's name. Amen. So an important tool for us to use in our efforts to interpret and apply the scriptures today is understanding the context of the scriptures, specifically uh, understanding the, the original audience that Jesus was speaking to through this parable. I believe that if we take a look at that at the beginning of Luke 15, that this will give us Uh, much greater understanding in regards to what Jesus's intentions were for his original audience, as well as what Jesus's intentions are for us this morning. So turn to Luke 15. If you haven't already, we're going to take a look at the first two verses to give us this uh, contextual original audience tool as we seek to interpret and apply the scriptures to ourselves. Now the tax collectors, verse one, and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So right off the bat, we've got a setting that is thick with uncomfortableness and with intensity. In this culture, there were no two groups of people who were more segregated than the leaders of the Jews and what is called sinners in the in, in this account, uh, the pagans, the non-Jews, the tax collectors and sinners. Matthew in his gospel in chapter nine, verses 10 through 13, gives us a little bit more insight into the environment, the climate of this uncomfortableness and intensity. In Matthew 9, 10 through 13, uh, Matthew gives us some awareness of how controversy followed Jesus everywhere he went as Jesus in these verses is sharing a meal with the religious leaders and the sinners. So he's at a table with both of them. The Pharisees say to to one of Jesus's disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so the irony here is thick as well. And the irony is that the Pharisees and the sinners were equally sinful and in need of Jesus. But the Pharisees placed themselves in high esteem, assuming God's approval of them based on their religious performance. However, the sinners, the tax collectors, the drug addicts, the alcohol abusers, the fornicators, the prostitutes, they knew they were sinners. 
It was obvious to them. It was obvious to everyone else. Therefore, to be loved and befriended by and pursued by Jesus in this way was revolutionary for them. And for Jesus to invite these sinners to experience forgiveness and relationship with God was scandalous. The sinners loved Jesus because of this. The Pharisees, however, hated him. They were enraged at who he loved and how he taught because everything that he taught was in stark contrast to everything that they believed about sin and about God. So in our parable this morning, the younger son represents the sinners in the audience. The sinners, we'll put quotes around that. The older son represents the scribes and the Pharisees, the outwardly seemingly obedient ones. Two what looks like on the surface are very different groups of people. One outwardly rebellious, one outwardly following the rules, both equally sick with sin. The two sons in the story are also given to us to serve us as a mirror this morning in regards to our own personal sin. So as we jump in and we start to wade our way through this parable, I want us to all be kind of asking two vital questions as we're unpacking it. The first is, which son am I in the story? Who do I relate to most? But even more significant than identifying with one of the sons is all of us understanding what Jesus intends to communicate to us through the father in the parable. When you get in a room this size with this many people, you can know without a doubt that many of us have what some may call serious daddy issues, if you will. Daddy issues. Some are more tragic than others. Some are more severe than others. Some are caused by abuse. Some are caused by neglect. Some are caused by the the total absence of a father altogether. And I would argue that this father-child relationship has an infinitely greater impact. This father-child relationship or the lack thereof has an infinitely greater impact on who we become as people than any other relationship that we will ever experience in this life. I have my own set of daddy issues that I'm walking through. This may be part of your story as well. At the root of any daddy issue, big or small, is a longing we all have for a perfect father. A father who never sins, who never lies, who never lets us down, who never hurts us, who never abandons us. This is a deep soul need that we are all born, created with. And tragically, the reality is that no father, no matter how hard we try, can fulfill this longing for a child. We were all created, acknowledge it or not, to experience the love of a perfect father that will never leave or forsake us. So the father in the parable represents God. So as we see the father react to the sons and we hear the father speak in this parable, let us pay close attention. Jesus is speaking directly to the heart of your daddy issue. And he's speaking to our insatiable longing for relationship with a perfect father. If you don't hear or remember anything this morning, I pray that we hear and remember the father in the parable. So the second question before we jump in to consider is what does this parable tell me about God? Let's look at uh, Luke 15 
first, uh, uh, verse 11 and verse 12 here. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now on the surface, if we just pass over, this may not seem very scandalous or shocking, but the cultural context of what's taking place here gives us insight to how shocking this is. Here we meet the first son, the younger son, the rebel son, and what he says to the father is outrageous. This would have been an affluent Jewish family. This father was a patriarch and he would have been held in high esteem and greatly respected in this culture. And the youngest son approaches him and says essentially this, dad, I wish that you would die today so I could get my inheritance and be done with you forever. This patriarchal Middle Eastern culture, highly esteemed parents, especially the father figure. Children were commanded to respect and revere parents, especially fathers, so much so that in the Jewish Old Testament, there were laws that prescribed punishments like severe physical beating, exile, even death for blatantly disrespecting a father in this way. But this is not how the father responds. As heartbroken and crushed as he must have been, it says he divided the property between them. And in the original language, it it says that he literally tore his life in two in order to give the son what he was asking for. Look at verse 13, the scandal grows. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. A modern paraphrase of this verse may be, he went to Vegas and he wasted his money and his entire life away in gambling and drugs and alcohol and prostitutes. Have you guys ever seen online uh, these series of pictures, mugshots of people that had been arrested multiple, multiple times over the course of their life? Anybody seen this? Um, So in the first picture, the the, the person usually looks young and healthy and clean. And tragically, over the course of the series of images, you can see the visible effects of drug, drug abuse and alcoholism and whatever else they may be mixed up in. And you can see them deteriorate before your eyes. This is what's happening to the rebellious son. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything to make it worse, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Jesus continues to shock his original audience here. This is where some of the audience might have gasped. This is where some of the Pharisees likely may have turned their heads away in disgust And it's hard for us to relate to the cultural vileness of what happens here for a Jew. Jews were forbidden from definitely eating pigs, certainly from touching them. They were forbidden from even coming into contact with the region where the pigs would have been living. This is a scenario where severe economic depression hits the the area. There are no jobs, especially for strung out homeless addicts like this son. And the son finds himself taking the most humiliating, disgusting job that could have been conceptualized by a writer or by someone telling a story here. 
He's not just herding the pigs, which would have been scandalous enough. He's feeding them. He's probably sleeping next to them in the filth to stay warm at night. And he's so malnourished that he's on his hands and feet eating like an animal, sharing the slop of the pigs. Jesus is painting for all of us a clear picture here, a vivid picture of what rock bottom looks like. Some of you may have experienced a rock bottom in your story before Jesus. I know I did. So as well as a rock bottom, Jesus is illustrating for all of us the seriousness of the consequences of our own sin and rebellion. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired as one of your hired servants. So here in the midst of the rock bottom that the son has caused by his own sin, a glimmer of hope breaks through. In the darkness, the light bulb begins to flicker in the son's heart. And just for a moment, he sees with clarity in the midst of his confusion and darkness. His last resort is returning home. Returning home would risk severe physical punishment, possibly even death. There's no guarantee that the father would show mercy. He has no ability to pay back what had been lost. There's literally nothing he has to offer but a repentant heart. And we see in the text that he has a repentant heart that has realized the gravity of his sin against the father as well. And more importantly, has realized his sin against God. What we have here is a beautiful picture of repentance. Because repentance is not just experiencing regret for sin, but turning away from sin and moving back towards the Father. So the Son prepares his speech. He formulates a game plan. Listen to what happens next here in verse 20. And remember our question, what does this parable tell us about God? This is one of the most astounding verses in the entirety of the scriptures. Verse 20. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. <laughs> and he ran <laughs> and embraced him and kissed him. As a father, when I try and place myself into the the shoes of this father in the parable. I imagine that every morning after another sleepless night, wondering if his son was even still alive, the father would step out on to the front porch and look into the distance with an ever diminishing glimmer of hope that maybe just maybe today will be the day that my boy comes home. And when it seemed as if hope was too painful to hold on to any longer, the day has come and he sees his boy in the distant horizon. He recognizes him and he knows he's alive and he knows he's coming home. The father can't wait. His longing and compassion thrust him into a full out sprint towards the son. And in the original language, it says he literally fell on him and kissed him and could not stop kissing him. 
As a parent, some of you guys who are parents experience this or remember experiencing this where you drive your kids crazy because at times your love is so unrestrainable that you grab a hold of your kid and you squeeze them literally as tight as you can squeeze them without hurting them and you kiss them and you do not stop kissing them until they scream and squirm and escape and make their way back to playing. This is unrestrainable parental love. And here we see unrestrainable fatherly love that is compounded and multiplied by the father's longing for his son to return home. Aggressive love. This is the story of the gospel of Jesus. Our scandalous sin and rebellion met with the only sufficient remedy, the scandalous love of God. And it's scandalous because the son of God was nailed to a Roman cross and executed for our sin. God in the flesh was killed so you could live. Scandalous sin, scandalous rebellion met with scandalous love from God. This is the gospel. And Jesus wants us all to understand that his father's love for his children is not stiff or stern or indifferent or far removed, but it is unrestrainable. It is passionate. It is active sprinting love every time. This is the love of God for rebellious sinners like you and me through Jesus. God, our father anxiously longs to embrace us and welcome us home, and hold us in his arms again when we are far away from home, when we are far away from him. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to party. So the son has got to be shocked by the reaction of the father. He's being embraced and kissed over and over again by the father. And so he begins his speech that he had prepared. The father could care less. He doesn't let him get through the first sentence. The father doesn't let the son grovel. He doesn't give the son a list of activities to perform in order to earn his way back into the family. The son is literally dying. He is strung out. He's filthy. He smells terrible. He's unshaven. He doesn't even have shoes on his feet. And this is an illustration of all, all of our spiritual condition in our sin when we are estranged from the father and the father doesn't just clean him or clothe him, but he calls for his own robe and he calls for the ring bearing the seal of the family to be put on his finger that would have only been worn by an heir, by a son. The son deserves punishment. He deserves possibly even death, but the father gives him what he doesn't deserve. And this is the definition of God's grace towards us through Jesus. The father gives the son undeserved love, immediate adoption back into the family, and for every Christ follower in the room this morning, this is your story. This is our story. And this is not, if this is not your story this morning, it can be. 
perhaps the light bulb is flickering in your heart, even this morning, like the sun in our story. And you're realizing that your whole life, you have been far from home, that the longing in your heart that cannot be satisfied by money or food or relationship or sex or achievement or homes or stuff or more stuff or bigger homes may be a longing that you have to experience relationship with the perfect heavenly father who will never leave or forsake you. You can be restored to him this morning. You can have relationship with your creator, God. You can admit your sin, all of it. And God will embrace you and cleanse you. All that he asks of you is that you believe that he sent Jesus, that Jesus was hung on a cross and received the punishment that you deserve for your sin from God so that you could receive his love forever and ever pray that you would believe Jesus this morning and be welcomed home and have your soul satisfied. Jesus, through this parable, is redefining salvation for all who will hear. Perhaps he's redefining salvation for you in this very moment. That would be awesome. The son stands before the father, not with a list of moral accomplishments, but he is empty handed. What he does have is brokenness over his sin. He brings nothing to the table, but repentance. He earns nothing, but receives everything. Forgiveness, love, and acceptance. This is the invitation from God through Jesus towards sinners like us who have turned their backs on him and who are far from home. Now, this is where a lot of people stop in the story. It's a high note. I can understand why. But if we stop here, we miss one of the most important messages and one of the most terrifying realities about us and our sin. So let's, let's keep going. Let's look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So here we meet the second son. We're calling him the religious son. He's out working hard in the field for the father. And he, he hears a spontaneous buck wild party going down back at the house. To make things worse, he hears that the prized family fattened calf has been killed. Let's see how he responds. Verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. This word entreated means a compassionate pleading with. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? The inward hidden sin of the son's heart is boiling over and coming to the surface here. He's furious. And what he's doing is publicly humiliating his father. He raises his voice in anger and says something like this. All these years I've been working and waiting. I didn't take my money and run like your other son, but all you could think about was him. And you never even threw me a party with a goat, much less the fattened calf. And now this washed up drug addict, your son shows back up and you give him this kind of party. The bad son, 
bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the, the son of moral excellence is still lost. And this is scandalous. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp as they hear this part of the story, as this is a complete reversal of everything they believed about God. The son's reaction exposes the motive that has been propelling his outward obedience. He's been keeping a running total of his inheritance, of the big payout that he would receive when his father died. And as he sees the extravagantness of this party taking place, he sees it as his dollar signs going down the drain. He sees himself as good. He sees himself as deserving, but his hard work has never been motivated by love for the father. It's all been a show. It's all been an attempt to manipulate the father for what the father could give him. Verse 31, the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father responds with remarkable tenderness and patience as he tries to reason with the son who's just attacked him, who has publicly humiliated and disgraced him. He says, your brother, my son, we thought he was dead. (laughs) We thought he was gone forever and he has come home. Celebrate with us. Jesus has a message for the Pharisees in his audience, and he has a message for us in the room as well. This is applicable to us anytime we believe that we have worked hard enough or obeyed well enough to earn anything good from God. When we attempt to manipulate God's activity or emotions by our own religious or moral performance, we are the older brother, and this is a terrifyingly dangerous place to be. Churches all over the city, all over the United States right now are filled with thousands and thousands of people who think that they are good enough on their own, who think that they have done enough good and avoided enough bad to earn God's approval. This diminishes or does away with gratitude for the cross of Jesus completely, but gratitude for the cross of Jesus should be the defining characteristic of a Christ follower. So does this describe you? Hear the warning from Jesus. The terrifying thing about this parable is that the story ends with the restoration of the outwardly rebellious son to the father, but with no restoration for the finger pointing, rule following, good enough religious son. Do you call yourself a Christian because you actually walk with Jesus daily? because you treasure God, (laughs) because ever so slowly you're becoming more blown away that God can love you in your sin. Are you trying to obey God with your life? Or you call yourself a Christian because you're a good person? Because after all, you're not as bad as the next guy. Because you attend church, because you have Christian family heritage or friends, because you participate in enough religious activities, this is a dangerous place to be. 
religious activity, being a good person, abstaining from bad things, attending church, serving at church, charitable works, all mean nothing. They mean nothing without faith in Jesus. You can't work your way to God. It's impossible. Jesus came and he worked for us so that we could be restored with God. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is knowing that you need it. People who think that you're just fine, this is the most deadly spiritual condition. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. May he make us all more humble. So as we remember the father in the parable today, let's consider (laughs) what does this mean for me on Monday morning? How in the world is this applicable when I drag myself out of bed and I either limp or walk or sprint into another week in this chaos that we call life? How is this supposed to help me? As Christ followers, even after we are eternally cleansed by Jesus, even after we are welcomed home and adopted by God eternally, we every day continue to drift We sin (laughs) to various degrees. We constantly turn our backs on God. We continue to rebel against him and wander from home and try to do things in our own way, believing that we know best. Did any of you guys ever run away from home as a kid? I'm not the only one. Okay. Me and you, buddy. I ran away from home once when I was five. Uh, We were living in Little Rock, Arkansas. My mom let me go. Have you heard the story, babe? (laughs) It was summertime. I took a backpack and filled it with a box of popsicles. (laughs) I made it all the way to the end of our neighbor's driveway. And I sat down on the curb and I ate the popsicles and I got hot and thirsty. And in less than an hour, I came back home. I I don't remember what happened after that, but I assume that my mom washed the sticky popsicle residue off of my face and body and welcomed me home. I I honestly doubt that she even knew that I was gone. (laughs) (laughs) That's silly, right? Our daily drifting and sinning and turning our back on God and wandering away from home with you, if you will, is just as silly as this sin. This may be the only time in a sermon that I will ever tell you guys to be like Jacob, (laughs) but may we all challenge ourselves to be more like the five-year-old Jacob, where we come to our senses quickly when we have left home and we return home. We sprint home because we know that the father will clean us and welcome us again. May God give us his spirit to help us realize more quickly when this is happening, because the longer and the further we wander away from home and wander away from him, the more dire the consequences will become for us. Christian, when we sin, when we fail, when we turn our back on God, when we do our own thing tomorrow, may we train ourselves to remember the father in this parable, to visualize his active love, his sprinting love fueled by compa- c- compassion and forgiveness. 
the love for rebellious children returning home every time through the cross of Jesus as Christ followers, every time we sin, every time we sin, as soon as we come to our senses and turn to make the journey home, God, our father does not wait for us to climb a ladder of religious performance back to him. He does not ask us to clean ourselves up first before we come to him. No, his heart is overflowing with longing and compassion for you. And he sprints to you with passionate, active love. And he embraces you and he clothes you in the robe of Christ's righteousness. And he puts the finger with the mark of a family heir, meaning son or daughter, the ring on the finger that means son or daughter. And he cleanses you and he welcomes you back home every time. This love of God is passionate and active and sprinting. And when we sin, may we visualize the father running to welcome his boy home. Through Jesus, God embraces us and kisses us, and he does not stop kissing us. Now, this may, that may make you a little bit uncomfortable, especially if you're a dude. Uh, I remember at some point in my life, my mom kissing me became awkward. Like, you try, to, you try to juke out of a, a kissing fit. Um, may we not fool ourselves and believe that we have matured spiritually enough to not be overwhelmed with the thought of God the Father loving us and holding us in his arms and kissing us over and over again. This is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fatherly unrestrainable, passionate, sprinting love of God for us, even when we sin. My family and I live a little north of, uh, of here, off of a road called Old Hickory. And uh, on the way to our house, there's probably 20 churches, and they all have those roadside marquees with the letters, and they come up with catchy marketing phrases for each Sunday. And at times, they may not know it, but it's more awkward than you want to admit when you look at it. And uh, this week, there was one by our house that had three words on it, be like Jesus. Tremendous advice. After all, this is why God saved us. This should be the aim of our entire life as Christ followers. We must take being like Jesus very seriously. Being a Christian is becoming more and more like Jesus until we're finally with him face to face and free from all sin. Being like Jesus means sinning less and obeying God more day by day. But if it were as simple as telling ourselves to be like Jesus, this sermon would have lasted 10 seconds and it would have sounded like this. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Be like Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. It's not that easy. Oh, if it were that easy. The reason Jesus obeyed the, the Father perfectly was because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and he was responding to the approval and love of the Father that he already had. It was a response. In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within you, Christ follower, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead and remembering and gratitude for God's sprinting love are the two components necessary for authentic obedience. Gratitude for the cross empowered by the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can make us be like Jesus. And we need to be more like Jesus. 
That's why we have to remember the Father's sprinting, passionate, active, aggressive love for us every time we sin. This is why we can't move past the gospel. This is why you're not going to hear a sermon next week about 10 things, 10 steps to take, 10 things to do to become a better whatever. We can't follow these steps without the cross. We need the Holy Spirit and we need more gratitude for the fact that God the Father loves us even when we sin. And so the story here ended with a feast and we have a spiritual feast provided by Christ. We have communion to remember what practically had to take place in order for God to be able to love us in this scandalous way. So we have broken bread that is supposed to uh, ignite our, our imagination to see God in the flesh nailed to a criminal's cross, absorbing the wrath of God, the punishment of God that we deserve for our sins. And we take the broken bread and we dip it in wine or juice. And we watch that red liquid absorb completely into the bread. And we remember that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and that his blood makes us clean so that the father loves us even when we sin. So I want to pray for us. We'll have a, a station on either side of the stage with servers. We have two stations in the back with just the elements. So do what makes you comfortable. Take your time. Let me pray for us and we'll celebrate together. Jesus I pray that this will be way more than religious activity, that you would give us childlike hearts of faith to be excited that you have earned the Father's love for us. Help us understand the cross more and believe that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for those who the light bulb began to flicker in their heart today, would you save them? Would you welcome them home? Would you embrace them? Would you make them a son or daughter even today through faith in Jesus? And in his name we pray, amen.